the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back. As we head into Hour 2, we do so every Monday with Brandon Weikert. He pub- he is the publisher of The Weikert Report, W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T, The Weikert Report. It's free. He's also a columnist at the Asia Times, an author. He is uh, – I, I never know what to say about your books, Brandon, because you're <laughs> you're, you're great. You've got – one book that has been just tremendous, obviously. You've got an update for it coming out, and you've got a whole yeah. entire new book yet again. Yeah. Uh, your first yeah. book, obviously, Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. It's going to be updated and brought into paperback shortly. But then you have another book landing on Iran as well in the United yeah. States. Yeah. Go ahead. Absolutely. Yes, well, the, the first book is right now I'm doing the update um, for the the. The uh, paperback version, which I hopefully will have done in the next few weeks, I keep kind of getting sidetracked. Um, and then, because there's been a lot of news about space, maybe not covered in the mainstream media, but there has been a lot of stuff coming out lately uh, about Space Force and what China and Russia are doing. So I'm trying to update the book to incorporate that. And then I also, as you noted, in November, we're angling for the fall, probably October, November of next year, uh, Republic Book Publishers is publishing my second uh, book called The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. Uh, I, I, I can't wait for that because it's, a, it's, it's not a funny thing. It's, it's an odd moment in our times when we think yeah. about national security. You know, you think about the threats to national security. Obviously, China looms large. Obviously, terrorism looms large. One should think that Iran looms large. One should think Syria looms large. One should think Russia looms large. And, of course, we have the the problem at our southern border and all that that entails. And it's an odd thing. There's just not a lot of writing about it, is there? There's not. I mean, thank God for you, and and obviously you have colleagues that that are focused on this stuff. But, you know, in a better day and age, these would be the stories and not the human interest things that about, you know, whatever. Go ahead. Well, yes, and and I'm actually uh, currently working on a few pieces for our old pals at American Greatness, Uh and one of them is sort of an assessment uh, of how America has started to return to a focus on domestic politics. Um, it's something that we've sort of eschewed for a while, uh, particularly during the Cold War and then after, when we were focused on the global war on terror. Um, and, and now it seems that domestic politics and priorities are taking precedent. But as I'm getting ready to write this piece, I'm trying to make it clear that actually the domestic politics is shaped and informed and informs foreign policy as much as foreign policy can shape and inform domestic politics. As Americans, we're not used to looking at it that way. We kind of silo those two things off. Um, But we see with the election of Joe Biden, for instance, a complete sea change, uh, not necessarily for the better, uh, in the way that this country conducts itself on the world stage. Almost overnight, 
you remember, uh, Biden's first big thing was to do the Putin summit yep. in which he essentially gave away the store on Nord Stream 2 pipeline. You and I have talked about that before, yep. which has completely fundamentally altered the balance of power in Europe, away from the United States and toward NATO. I mean, toward, uh, toward Russia, uh, harming NATO. And then you look at now what Biden's getting ready to do with China. I am with David Goldman on this. I think that rather than beating his chest and standing firm against China the way that his predecessor Trump was doing, but even Trump also kind of did the trade deal, which I didn't think was necessarily the best thing. Uh, but ultimately, Trump was tough on China, and it looked for a while like Biden was going to continue that, but that was a feint. I think that now we hear the ruminations of a Biden-G summit in the next 30 to 60 days. And I think at that point, Biden is going to do the mother of all deals, a trade deal, a comprehensive trade deal, and a comprehensive climate change deal. And I think that's going to um, very much change the domestic calculations. I think in the near term, it could help Biden uh, by curbing some inflation. Uh, in the long term, though, obviously, any deal with China over those issues will, in the long term, benefit China. Uh, and so, you know, we look at the election of a president usually in terms of a domestic affair, but that president can really influence not just the immediate few years that he or maybe one day she is in office, but they can also, you know, determine the next 30 or 40 years of American history. Um, and, you know, even the infrastructure bill, which I'm not a big fan of because I do think there's too many uh, giveaways to Democratic interests uh, rather than actual infrastructure. But infrastructure, as China talks about and as I talked about in my article at the Asia Times from last week, um, comprehensive national power is a Chinese concept. And they include things like not just military, but infrastructure spending as a form of a, of a, of a foreign policy or national security imperative. And so Biden wanting to do it, I think he was right to want to do infrastructure. I think he was wrong, though, in the way he went about it and some of what was involved. But even the failure to do the infrastructure or to get it passed when his party's in power actually weakens him on the world stage because other world leaders think, hey, this guy can't even get his own party to go along with him. No, that's, that's a great point. That's a fantastic point. This is a man who's being pushed around by not yeah. only the Taliban, but his own darned party in america right. what what is he right. building back better other than illegal immigration china and right. iran and terrorism right so you see that connection and so um you know i do think it's been very interesting to see because traditionally americans have more than usually valued domestic concerns than foreign policy concerns really foreign policy only started becoming a major factor in the last 50 years uh in u.s presidential politics so uh, we are sort of returning to that old way, of, old American way of doing politics. But I think it's very dangerous to look at it that way because the two are connected. And, uh, you know, one thing President Obama, I, I talked to people from Saudi Arabia, from other countries, the one thing they all said is when Obama was elected in 08, nobody believed he had the wherewithal to do anything. But the one thing that did give him a bit of cachet uh, with world leaders was what he got in, uh, the Affordable Care Act through. Mm -hmm. uh, now, you and I may not like that, and, and but it did show that he could at least push his agenda through forcefully, and so the rest of the world sort of took notice of that. 
where the exact opposite is happening with Biden. There's literally nothing Biden has done or has tried to do that has worked. It's, it's been a complete disaster, and nobody takes this guy seriously, and therefore nobody takes us seriously, and they, they're going to try to prey on us. And that's what's happening. Even the French are, you know, are making us you know, look bad. Everybody's making us look bad under Biden. And that, that's not good. And that's a direct reflection of the man that was elected purportedly in, in 2020. Brandon, let me let me take you for a second, because I know you're schooled in this as well, educated in this area of, of thought as well. In addition to your foreign policy expertise, let, let me take you to, a, to a, a, an area of political philosophy or political theory for a second on this, because your column is really smart. In discussing, oh, you. you're welcome. In discussing, <laughs> that, that's a good way to keep a guy, right? In, <laughs> how was that? I gave a speech the other day, and the first thing someone said to me as I left the stage was, "There's an, a, an awful lot you don't know." <laughs> I said, "Well, maybe invite another speaker next time." <laughs> you know. <laughs> anyway, there's an awful lot you do know, um, Yo, and you're you. making the connection between domestic and foreign policy. People often. Think of it, and I think errantly as 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 distinct. It's kind of yeah. it's. I don't mean to open up a, a bag of, you know, a, a, a bag of problems for us here, but I, I've yeah. often thought of that when I hear the distinctions between Wall Street and Main Street. They just don't. They're not there anymore. It's not what it. You, right. Everything is pretty intertwined these days. Right. In any event, right. okay. Not so you're good with me on that. Better. Talk to me more about this yeah. domestic foreign false dichotomy, if you will. Right. Well, the, again, the infrastructure is a great is a great example because the thing about infrastructure is it's a very boring topic, and there's a lot of room for corruption and abuse, as we see with this bizarre human infrastructure uh, component that the Democrats are throwing in. But the one thing we do know is that, for instance, one of the reasons we invested in the inter- interstate uh, highway system, uh, Eisenhower did a big investment build out of the uh, the national interstate system. Oh, that was to move nuclear missiles around more efficiently. That was to move military equipment around more efficiently. Uh, in the during the Cold War, during the heady days of the Cold War, there was a military component to that. Then there's also the issue of infrastructure as being an, an attraction, right? So China has high speed rail. Oh, that's a great point. Oh, that that's a good one. Yeah, yeah I got to take a quick commercial break. Yeah, let me do that since we're not state-run radio in the countries you're talking <laughs> about. <laughs> uh, well, I, I'm Seth Leibson. He's Brandon Weicker. He's also delighted to take your calls as I am six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero, and we will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. He's the publisher of the Weikert Report. And uh, unlike all those other sites you may or may not visit, uh, certainly seems to be the ones I do increasingly the case. You just want to go and read and be smarter for a few moments or forever maybe, and they blast you with signing up for things. That's not what Brandon does. It's all there and easy for you. Thanks for doing that, Brandon. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, you. you're welcome. Maybe I should start doing that. Though. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Jack Kemp was giving a speech for a Chuck Colson thing once I was at, and Jack said, this all started when Colson called me and said, do you believe in free speech? And Jack said, of course. And Chuck said, well, how about giving one? 
<laughs> Brandon believes in free speech. Yeah, and he gets yeah, 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 yeah. 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 <laughs> it is great website. Sorry about that, yeah, buddy. You. It's meant no, as a compliment. No, thank you. no, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. You betcha. No, I, I appreciate it. No, thank I, you. I'm sure you've had the yeah. options of making this a highly monetized thing with all that stuff. I love that you haven't. Um, information you. is more important, as George Washington said. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. You were talking right before the yeah. break. You were talking about this false dichotomy, if you will. Yeah. Between foreign and domestic relations. And, and you're the right. right one to address it. Keep going, if you don't mind. Yeah. So, I mean, the infrastructure deal is a great example. Um, you know, so China has, for the last 20, 30 years, invested copiously in modernizing their infrastructure uh, and expanding it out and linking the country together with, for instance, these high-speed rails. Uh, creating, and I don't want to sound like Thomas Friedman here, uh, but creating really incredible airports. They're now investing in, uh, you know, they have the 5G build out for to support 5G internet. Um, you know, just they, they've really spent the last 20, 30 years on infrastructure. And what that has done is it's not only bettered the lives of the citizens there, they're, you know, uh, repressive tendencies as a regime notwithstanding. Um, but they've also made China a very attractive country in the world in terms of getting people to visit, in terms of getting the Olympics, in terms of bringing in high, uh, you know, high-tech research and development programs. People actually like to live in Shanghai now. People, you know, before the crackdown in Hong Kong, like to live in Hong Kong. People like to live in Shenzhen. Uh, there are there are now China has made itself into a very competitive and dynamic uh, marketplace in part because large part because of the infrastructure that they built out for the last twenty or thirty years, whereas our infrastructure has slowly degraded. Uh, it's not bad, but it's not great either, um, and it's certainly not what the world's sole superpower should have, and that actually hurts uh, us on the world stage. It makes us less competitive, less attractive. Uh, it hurts our comprehensive national power, which is a concept the Chinese have come up with, which is basically a way to measure a country on a total societal level, not just counting bullets versus bullets or bombers versus bombers, but looking at the underpinnings of the society, at the political structure, the educational style, educational attainment, uh, you know, the, the individual or, or familial wealth of, of citizenry. How much money do they generate? What does the tax system look like? This is how the Chinese intelligence and political science educators in China look at other nations. They uh, can uh, use uh, this model to compute, uh, you know, what they think is a great, perfect snapshot of another country they're dealing with. And so I think that what we need to start doing in America is sort of taking on that, that outlook of the comprehensive and recognize that. Something like infrastructure and the inability of a president who has his own party in control of the legislative branch can't get that through. Well, that makes him look very bad on the world stage, and that actually hurts America. The fact we don't have 5G infrastructure the way China does, or the way that we don't have high-speed rail connecting at least the northeastern corridor together. We're still relying on Amtrak. Uh, that actually makes us less competitive globally, uh, and so forth. And so... I think that's another way that we don't necessarily look at foreign policy and domestic policy as linked. 
but they are. And yeah, I, I'm glad you do, put it that way. That yeah. you've done a nice job, and 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 we can. Thank there's you. there's a lot that emanates from this too, by the way, which is in part not a great story about America. Why it would take us as so so much longer to accomplish what other countries right. seem to be able. Let's use China as an example. In not half the time, but you know, much much less than half the time. Uh, right. It's probably the second thing that I liked about Donald Trump when I heard about it in twenty fifteen yeah. or sixteen. But it was the story of the woman ice rink. Do you remember that story? Yes. So for years yeah. they had this great ice skating rink that no one could fix in New York City, and Trump called right. Koch and <laughs> Koch and said, "I don't know ice." But Canadians know ice, and I know Canadians. I think I can get this done. And he did right. ahead of time. I loved it. I remember him, and remember him and Koch hated each other. Yeah. And yet they still, they still had yeah. a common objective. And so, you know, that was the aspect of Trump that I loved. Yes. I wish, he, yes. I, wish he, I wish when he was president he had been more like that. Uh, uh, you know, and obviously he had a lot of hurdles that many other presidents didn't have to overcome. Uh, but I do, I do think that that aspect of him was very unique to a politician. Yes, 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 just, yes. And the larger yeah. point is, I don't think that must have been around 1985-86. I don't think yeah. that could be replicated today. It's less about Trump I than the society it, of our I of our. I think uh, it could. Okay. I think it could, but the problem is our political leaders, our politicians on both sides of the aisle, are linguini spine, and they don't understand how to act. They know how to talk. I was listening to Pete Buttigieg or Buttigieg go on about the roundtables he's going, these roundtable meetings about how they're going to talk with leaders in industry to overcome the supply chain backstop with all the cargo ships and the trains that are 25 miles backed up outside of Chicago because they can't move stuff around the country anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, I, and they had General Honore, who was the former U.S. Army National Guard commander during Katrina, and he was on, I think it was maybe MSNBC, he was on one of these networks today on my way back from work, and he was going on about how, you know, we don't need any more talking from the political leadership. we got to have the political leadership say, okay, if the civilians can't get it done, we've got an entire logistical wing of the U.S. National Guard that's ready to roll in. They're all trained to move stuff around. We have a whole military supply line that's not being used in this country. Why doesn't the, the, the Secretary of Transportation use his power and have the president use his power to order the military to back up whatever gaps or to fill in whatever gaps are appearing in the civilian supply chain. And all the MSNBC anchor kept saying is, well, the Secretary Buttigieg is he's going to these roundtables, he's meeting with industry leaders. We don't we don't have politicians who know how to act. We have no, we have politicians who know how to virtue signal. So Pete Buttigieg, Buttigieg, Joe Biden, they're very good at complaining and talking about a problem, but they're not good at actually executing a solution. And so that's just a microcosm, I think, of a wider problem with the, with the indolent political elite in our country. And that's for both parties. Kevin McCarthy is as guilty of this as Pete Buttigieg or, or Joe Biden is. We just There's no backbone anymore, and there's no understanding of how to move. Everything's about talking and tweeting. That's true. That's true. But you know what else isn't true of China that is true of us? A code of federal regulations that makes all of our ability to execute so right. much the harder. You know that Milton Friedman story of visiting China and seeing that big dig 
and all the people yeah. using shovels. He said, why don't you use tractors? You could accomplish this much faster. He said, yeah, but we can employ more people with shovels. And he said, well, then give them yeah. spoons and watch employment <laughs> really soar. I'll be right back with more from Brandon Weikert. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest columnist for the Asia Times. He is a uh, the publisher of um, of the the Weikert Report. He spells his last last name W E I C H E R T. Weikert Report. Brandon, I don't know. I, I'm a little older than you, maybe a lot, but I seem to lately have this uh, <laughs> late stage or adult onset stuttering problem. I don't know where it's. Kind of, I've never heard of that. Maybe I'll have to look it up. You write something really interesting in your column. I'm going to keep with you on political theory for a moment. You yeah. Write, the United States is still deep in the throes of seismic sociopolitical and economic changes, the likes of which the country has not endured in 80 years since the peaceful halcyon yeah. days of Franklin Roosevelt's presidency. What's more, America's ruling elite appear completely blinkered by the changes underway in the country. And, by, and Biden, as the child of America's patrician ru- ruling elite, is poorly matched to the systemic changes underway. Can you talk a little bit about what you're getting at there and what you mean by those? Yeah. So, you know, we see this throughout history. Once a certain group uh, reaches uh, in a nation or an empire or a society reaches the pinnacle of power and wealth after several generations, they start trying to basically bring the ladder up behind them, and they start trying to basically ensure that their class of people Sir, are you know remain at the top forever mm-hmm. at the expense of the rest of the people, um, and certainly at the you know one of the downsides of that kind of way of doing things is new ideas, new blood, if you will, is often rejected in favor of the old stodgy status quo consensus. Mm-hmm. So Donald Trump was very much nouveau riche. He you know he was a little too gaudy for the elite. He always liked to be around them, but he was never one of them, and he took great joy in kind of poking them in the eye uh, whenever he could, um, whereas Joe Biden uh, was was also kind of from a middle-class family who worked his way up, but he played the game the way you were supposed to, right? He made the right connections. He went to the political class. He worked his way up over decades, and he was Senate Foreign Relations, and he was number two to the first black president. He did all the right things you're supposed to do to be a, mem- a good member and standing of the elite. Um, but the problem is the elite are the problem for why we are in the position that we're in. They are uh, Their operating system is antiquated, and the country needs a new updated operating system. Uh, and I think that the election of Joe Biden was partly a setback for what was, beginning in 2015 and 16, a real change in our socioeconomic and political system. Uh, we go through these changes once every 80 to 100 years, and we were due for this. And the elite have so much power and aggregated wealth that they're trying their best to hold back that change as long as possible. And Biden is, is a, a creature of that, and he's ill-suited because what he's doing is he's kind of standing on a thwart history, yelling, stop. Uh, you know, he's trying to conserve the neoliberal consensus that took shape from the post-World War II era beyond. And that consensus is leaving us whether, you know, he likes it or not and the people who support him like it or not. 
Um, and so I really think that he's ill-suited, a poorly matched for what's going on. We need more of a change agent. We don't need a stabilizer. We need someone who's going to push us through this period of change as quickly as possible and let the pieces settle as they may. But unfortunately, we're prolonging the agony now by having a guy like Biden who's really just not, he's not the right fit for this moment in time, in my opinion. Thank you for that, Brandon. Uh, I appreciate it. I um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about China, if I could. Uh, right. But, um, yeah, I'm almost thinking I want to save it for the next, uh, next segment because we're going to head into a break here in a moment. But let me just yeah. set the table, if I might, for a second. We're, we're now getting into what I sometimes refer to. I, I don't. Others do, and I, I use it. A silly season. When it comes right. to China analysis, so you know, I was just, I, every day I put China in my news search, and I just see what the top stories are. I do that with right. a lot of issues, and you do it now. You get a headline from Reuters: China has won AI battle, artificial yeah. intelligence battle with U.S. Yeah. You go to the, mm-hmm. you get a similar that's that's listed as having been reprinted two hours ago, an hour ago. Bloomberg headlines, China isn't the AI juggernaut the West fears, <laughs> okay? And then right in the middle there, you get this essay in The Atlantic, Washington is getting China all wrong about the economic right. model. I'm wondering if you can maybe, in fact, I'm told in China there's no phrase for this, but I'm wondering if on the other side of the break you could square right. some of those circles for us. Absolutely. That's what you were born for, (laughs) squaring circles. (laughs) Brandon Weikert is our guest. Winning Space is his book, theweikertreport.com, his website, Asia Times, where he is a columnist, and the phone number to talk to him, 602-508-0960. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. That is the voice of Frank Sinatra. The other voice you hear live on this uh, line is Brandon J. Weikert. He is the publisher of the Weikert Report. You want to be smart, you want to read the Weikert Report. Totally free. And, of course, his great book, Winning Space, with a new edition coming out, new and updated edition coming out shortly, and then a book on Iran to follow next year. Brandon, right before the break, I was saying, you know, what what is one to conclude if you search news about China. Are they collapsing? Are they kicking our butts um, on any number of fronts? China has won AI battle with U.S. Reuters headline today, same day, same country. Bloomberg says China isn't the AR juggernaut the West fears. We can do this almost about any subject in China, but right. this is the uh, one in sharp relief today. Uh, how do you square these circles? So the first part is China's an opaque system, and so unless you're there on the ground and you have extensive business ties with that country, the leadership, you're never going to get a clear excuse me, snapshot. But um, what my experience is and the people that I'm affiliated with, as you know, David Goldman, for instance, also Gordon Chang. Now, Gordon is very much of the mind that China might be collapsing soon. David is not. I'm somewhere, you know, looking at this going... There's always a chance. There's always a chance that something could could happen, a black swan event that we're not anticipating. But if we are, as policymakers, hinging our entire success on the notion that maybe China goes away, 
uh, maybe Evergrande, this banking or this real estate developer that everybody's invested in and China goes under and takes the whole country with. If that's what we're banking on, then we're not doing a good job from the policymaking front. Um, because, frankly, China is a 5,000 almost year country. The majority of that time, China has been a power, a great power in the world. It's only in the last few hundred years that they had any kinds of problems. And they're coming out of this this problematic period, what they call the century of humiliation. And they're coming out, and they're very strong and competitive. Now, maybe Xi Jinping's rule is threatened. Maybe he's bitten off more than he can chew. Maybe he's lost the mandate of heaven. But just because he may, he may be losing out doesn't mean that the regime is going to collapse. And it certainly doesn't mean that what comes after him, if he is, in fact, on his way out, which I'm not sure of, uh, if he is on his way out, though, it doesn't mean what comes after is going to be better for us or for China. And so I think as, as Americans, what we have to look at is how is the investment community looking at this? Are they fleeing from China in droves? The answer is no, they're not. So these people in the West who are, you know, they're in charge of a lot of money and they're, they have a fiduciary responsibility to protect those assets and to build upon them. A lot of them are still making, you know, investments, big investments in China, whether it be in AI or quantum or 5G, possibly 6G, whatever. China is still receiving huge investments and support. Um, I think what's going on is China is in a is going through a transition right now. They were a uh, high saving economy, production economy. They're now transitioning into a knowledge based uh, consumption model, which means that they're going to have higher than usual debt loads than what they're used to. But it doesn't mean they're going to collapse. It also means that we have to be prepared to have a much more dynamic competitor on our hands. I am not sold on China collapsing, and I think that. The Biden administration certainly is not is not sold on that, which is why I think that there are right now these these openings occurring between Jake Sullivan and Wang Jingxi in uh, in last week in Switzerland as a prelude uh, to ultimately a grand bargain being set up between Washington and Beijing that sort of scoots these tensor uh, subjects under the table the way we've done for the last forty years. And, and focuses only on the economic and environmental cooperative framework, which will translate, I think, uh, into saving Biden's presidency from an economic apocalypse, but also saving Xi Jinping from whatever may be coming from his possible overreach that in the long run could lead to the diminution or the diminishing of America and the true elevation of a Chinese uh, hegemony in the world by 2049, as per Xi Jinping's goal uh, of, of the, the Vision 2049 or the China Dream 2049 plan. Um, I really think that we need to not invest so much time into China collapse. I do think that China is ahead of us in quantum computing, probably in AI. Again, they're investing in the physical infrastructure to do high-tech R&D. And what that means is that attracts Western capital and Western brain power mm -hmm. away from America and Europe and into Chinese research centers, most of which are all run either directly or indirectly by the Chinese military, like the Wuhan Virology Center, mm -hmm. which was receiving copious amounts of National Institute of Health uh, grants to do these very risky gain-of-function tests. Um, so, you know, that's where we are. So China's not going away. Uh, China's going to be a fierce competitor for a while. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, and I'm happy to be wrong, but I do think as, as, as a policymaker, we are mistaken if we just go, well, China's going to go away in the next 
five months, five years, 15 years. So we'll keep doing what we're doing uh, and not have to worry. I do think China's going through some dynamic change right now, which is going to hurt them a little bit. But we, we've gone through that, too. And every time we say China's going to collapse in Washington, I know for a fact Beijing's laughing, going, yeah, we may collapse. You guys are going to collapse. You can't even get an infrastructure bill passed. Yeah. America's on the brink of a civil war. What are you people talking about? Mm-hmm. We're going to collapse. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we really overestimate our survivability, and we underestimate the dynamic survival capabilities of the Chinese Communist Party to our own peril. Yeah, and I think the history of the world is dismissing legitimate and rational fears, not embracing them, the history of the, right. the of, of, of evil in the world. But it does raise an interesting, to me at least, an inter- a slightly interesting question. The way we think of China today versus the way we thought of the Soviet Union maybe in 1982 and the different ways those countries see themselves. You know, you know this a million times better than I ever could, but China understands the importance of reinvestment and the importance of um, success, uh, financial, economic, and uh, an outwardly seen success. It seems to me the Soviet Union didn't really care that much about it, honestly. Right. Honestly, the Soviet Union was a bloated administrative state by the end. It wasn't even really the fearsome, you know, it was still bad because they had nukes. No one wanted to do business in the USSR the way they wanted to do business in China would be a shorter way of putting it, right? Absolutely. And let's let's face it, I I don't want to overstate this, but let's face it, between the two powers, China and America, whose is the greater administrative state? It's not the Chinese Communist Party. It's America. It's Washington. We are a more administrative state. We look a lot more like the Soviet Union toward the end than does China, I'm sorry to say. Um, And I realize that's a radical statement, and I'm willing to be proven wrong on that. But it's pretty telling when China has lower tax rates and they are friendlier to businesses. Now, obviously, if you run afoul of the party, that's, you know, bad, bad, bad news for you. Sure, but if you're willing to toe the line, man... That's right. You are going to be very well off, and you're going to build an economy that's dynamic and modern and competes with the best economy in the world, the United States. And so, you know, i, I got to tell you, I'm more worried about the United States being the, in the Soviet role, if this is the Cold War, than I am China. And I actually think a better comparison is the British Empire versus the United States race for industrialization in the 19th century. The British Empire started that century as the preeminent world power, and by the end of that century, beginning of the 20th century, it was clear to all that Britain's former colonies across the pond were going to be the dominant power. And my concern is that China is playing the role of the United States, and we are playing the role of the British Empire Uh of the 19th century. And that's not going to end well. That's going to be a Chinese-dominated world, and Americans have not had to live in a world dominated by a foreign power, you know, since the British Empire, 100 years, and certainly we've never had to live in a world dominated by such a different system like China. It's going to be very bad for us. Nicely put out, Brandon. Nicely done, sir. Nicely analyzed. Thank you. You betcha. Thanks for doing this with us every Monday. It's just so critical. I love love having you. You betcha. Brandon Weikert, publisher of The Weikert Report. You can keep up with everything he's doing there. Weikert, W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T. Brandon, thank you again. We'll talk with you next week, and I will be right back.
I want to uh, give to the next caller, just to warm up Rusty's hands, which have been going stone cold today, uh, 602-508-0960. I want to give to the next caller two tickets free to a salute for American veterans, a salute to American veterans, November 6th, right here in, uh, in Phoenix at the Auction Pavilion. Saturday, November 6th. It's going to be a heck of an event sponsored by our friends at the Power of Fives. Big and Rich, Aaron Lewis, Eddie Montgomery of Montgomery Gentry, and a lot of others will be there. And you can learn more about it at thepoweroffives.com, thepoweroffives.com. But the next caller can get two free tickets if you just give us a ring. Um, What was – oh, yes, 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 yes. As we head – to the break, I want to put another word out to and on behalf of the brave soldiers who are standing up over at Southwest Airlines. Uh, Bill, how much time do I have? A little for this audio. Hopefully this is from someone who has been labeled one of the single bravest men in years. God bless these pilots. I've been an airline pilot for 18 years and now I'm facing an ultimatum. Not a choice, but an ultimatum. I'm being told in order to continue my career as an airline pilot, I must be vaccinated, which really means I have to choose between putting food on the table for my family and my freedom of choice. Whether you believe in vaccination is the right thing to do or not, the situation goes far beyond health. We, the American people, have fought for freedom for 257 years. We go around the world spreading ideas of freedom and democracy. We help other countries and people fight for their freedoms while ours are being stripped away. You may think being forced to wear a mask or get a vaccination is insignificant, but when you begin to compile mandate after mandate and loss of freedom after freedom, it becomes very significant. As he goes on, we stand with them, these Lekwalesas modern day. Maybe they can stop this totalitarianism push as he did in Poland. If he can do it, we can do it. I'm Seth Leibson, 602508. 0960, your hour coming up. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.